Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Believe it or not, there's more to DKA management than the orange-colored algorithm poster from 2001 hanging in your resuscitation bay. As it turns out, DKA management is a constantly evolving precision game. You're threading a needle here, finessing acid base, clinical status, blood sugar, sometimes on an hour-to-hour basis. Now, there are newish guidelines, so it's kind of time for an update. And I think you're noticing a recurrent theme here. The stakes are high, with delayed management on one side of the spectrum and rare but serious complications like cerebral edema on the other. Now, there are two groups of people who treat DKA. The first are those who are a bit blasé, maybe not airtight with their glucose targets, fluid and insulin infusion rates. They've seen a million semi-sick people. But then there's the other group, those with plenty of respect for DKA, who've needed to intubate an acidotic child, who have seen a patient deteriorate with cerebral edema, or even lost a DKA patient. So with the help of doctors Lior Summer, who you probably remember from our recent podcast on community-acquired pneumonia, Melanie Bamel, who you probably remember from our hyponatremia and hyperkalemia casts, and new to EM cases, critical care doc and trauma team leader extraordinaire, Burke Tillman from Sunnybrook Health Sciences in Toronto, we're going to tackle the fruitful world of DKA and HHS over the next two podcasts. So let's get into it. A 33-year-old type 1 diabetic well-known to your ED comes in with her usual uncontrollable episodes of non-bilious vomiting for the past 24 hours, which have previously been thought to be due to cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. She's also complaining of moderately severe generalized abdominal pain that started prior to the vomiting. She reports no coffee ground emesis, normal bowel movements in urine, no cough, and no fever. On exam, vitals are normal except for a heart rate of 120 and a respiratory rate of 26. GCS is 15. Cap glucose is 14, which for our U.S. listeners is high but not crazy high. She appears uncomfortable and dyspneic with her head hanging over the side of the bed holding a barf bag. Mucous membranes appear dry. Chest is clear. Abdomen is soft but non-tender on the right side with no peritoneal signs. We've probably seen similar patients like this before. Dr. Summer, how are you going to approach this patient and what's on your differential at this point besides DKA, of course? Obviously, whenever I walk into a room with a patient who is obviously quite sick, Part of me relies on that early recognition that I do with every patient that when I walk into the room. And, you know, we learn that over time with experience. It's what Danny Kahneman calls system one thinking. And so in this patient, I don't know what they look like because this is a scenario patient, but it sounds like this patient looks pretty sick. I'm going to rely on that initially. But even on paper, this patient has a heart rate of 120 and a rest rate of 26 in the absence of any other abnormal vital signs, those are very concerning. I don't know what this patient's shock index is because I don't have a blood pressure, but even those two things alone, if you plug them into a, a triage score, like a new score, that's a moderately sick patient you've got to be very, very careful with. And I assume when we have this patient who is vomiting, has abdominal pain, is tachycardic and tachypnic, 
this is probably a patient who's going to have a very high Weingart LLS score as well. I suspect this patient will probably not look very well. Wait, hold on. A Weingart LSS score? That's a Weingart LLS score. Looks like shit score. It's either one <laughs> or zero. I assume this patient's going to have a one. All right, fair enough. And, you know, obviously on this podcast, the patient's going to have DKA. That's what we're talking about. But we have a patient who's tachycardic, tachypnic, is presented with abdominal pain. The differential is actually quite broad when it comes down to it. And even if they have DKA, they may have a significant precipitant for that DKA as well. So you have to consider that too. You have to consider respiratory causes. This patient's tachypnic. We don't have their O2SAT, but you have to think about things like pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, cardiac issues, myocarditis, tamponade, and then obviously intra-abdominal infections. The patient's presenting with right-sided abdominal pain. Do they have a perfed appendicitis, gallbladder, perforated DU, other metabolic causes, thyrotoxicosis, or an active toxidrome, like a sympathomimetic toxidrome or alcohol withdrawal, anticholinergic toxidrome. The differential is still huge when you walk into that room with a patient with nonspecific symptoms like vomiting and abdominal pain. And really, the recognition of DKA is going to be mostly based on your history when it comes down to it. Does the patient have diabetes? If a patient has diabetes, DKA should always be on that differential. And remember, often these patients will present tachypnic, but not overtly dyspneic, meaning their arrest rate will be high, but they won't actually feel breathless. That's a huge difference from patients with a primary respiratory complaint who may not actually be tachypnic, but will be breathless, like a patient with a pulmonary embolism or coronary ischemia. One last thing is just a word on ketones, and we use that to make the diagnosis with the patient's biochemistry. But some clinicians are blessed with the ability to actually smell them as well when they walk into the room. Uh, I have to admit that I don't have that ability, and I've had a few of my colleagues walk by the room of my patient and tell me, oh, that patient's in DKA. I'm like, oh, I, wish, I wish I could smell that. Uh, unfortunately, I can't. I can't smell Molina, though, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I would probably just echo how useful that hyperpnea is, this patient who's breathing intensely but not really complaining about it. It's one of those end-of-the-bed signs you can use to at least raise the thought of DKA. It doesn't mean for sure it is. There are many toxidromes that do that as well, as Dr. Summers alluded to, but something that really clicks in my mind when you see this patient taking these huge breaths and they seem to be totally okay with it. All right. So this patient could have a whole variety of things. Let's say we order up a crystalloid bolus and we get some labs and the labs come back. The VBG shows a pH of 7.4. The CO2 is 31. Bicarb is 19. There's a base deficit of four and an anion gap of 22. The glucose is 14, which again is high, but not crazy high. Sodium's 142, chloride's 101, lactate is 5.5. It's a pretty high lactate, a little worrisome there. And the albumin is 36. Dr. Bamel, we've got this type one diabetic who's been vomiting, looks dry, dyspneic with belly pain, and the VBG comes back looking not too bad, but with an anion gap of 22 and a lactate of 5.5. Interpret the labs for us. What are you going to make of all this? Sure. 
So this is a case of a mixed acid-base disturbance, which makes interpretation of the lab values pretty tricky. On quick glance, it may appear that she's not in DKA because the pH is normal, the glucose is not all that high, and the high anion gap may be explained by the high lactate. But that's not the whole story, and that's what makes cases like this interesting. There are keto acids here that are actually contributing to the gap, as well as a metabolic alkalosis from the vomiting and volume contraction. Now, it would be nice if we could just screen these patients with a beta-hydroxybutyrate level and know whether they're in DKA or not. But unfortunately, that test is not available to many of us, so instead we have to do some math. And I like to use the modified or simplified Stewart approach or the MCRIT approach when solving these acid-base problems. So in this case, and the math will be in the show notes and the references that explain it will also be there. So I'll just go over it briefly. But basically, if the major determinants of acid base, the albumin, the sodium chloride difference, and the lactate do not explain the base deficit, then there are unmeasured ions present. So in this case, the sodium chloride difference and the albumin both increase the base deficit to about 11.5. And a lactate of 5.5 is not enough to explain that. So we can infer that there are unmeasured anions here present in the form of keto acids. The bottom line here is that you don't want to rule out DKA based on a normal pH. The patients will all be acidotic, but they won't necessarily be acidemic. And my final point is just that um, when you see a high anion gap, don't just assume it's from the lactate alone. Make sure to go through your mud piles and consider other causes, like in this case, keto acids, but also toxic alcohols and other diagnoses that were mentioned earlier. All right. So one of the key learning points here is DKA can certainly happen with a normal pH. And we'll get onto sort of the definition and the diagnostic criteria in a minute. Dr. Tillman, anything to add there? The key things that trigger my mind is I actually like using the base deficit. I didn't really use it at all during my residency, and then as I started practicing, I realized it was more and more helpful. The reason being that it comes back very fast. It comes back on your VBG. So if you can't do blood gas pluses, you'll still have it. And as it gets more negative, so a base deficit is a negative number. So as the number gets bigger, it tells you that they are sicker. So a base deficit of four sort of clues you in that something is going on, even before the lactate comes back or anything else. The other thing my brain does to help deal with this is I think of the aliens movies because they have acidy blood and acidy spit. So if someone's throwing up a lot, they've lost all their acid. Therefore, they should be normal because their acid's all gone in their vomit. And that's because my brain works really weirdly. <laughs> what a great analogy. Let's back up a little bit and start with the presentation of DKA. Now, we all know the classic symptoms of polyuria, polydipsia, and weight loss. Most of us have seen the so-called Kuzmal breathing. As Dr. Summer mentioned, that only some of us can detect the giveaway fruity acetone breath. But Dr. Summer, you've been practicing for about 20 years now. What are some of the kind of real-life presentations that we should be on the lookout for? Sometimes I find that initially their VBG doesn't look obvious. You don't have the ketones back yet and you're considering it, but nothing's really fitting. What are the kind of presentations that you've seen that steered you awry in the past? 
these patients can present all over the map because there's a huge spectrum of disease. And so you can have these kind of early, mild DKA patients who present very nonspecifically with just weakness, feeling unwell, mild abdominal pain, a few episodes of vomiting. And I should tell you, vomiting is actually the most common presentation for DKA. And so anytime you have a diabetic patient who's presenting with vomiting, DKA should be high on your list in the differential. But as you get further on into the course of their illness, these patients can present quite ill. They get significant electrolyte disturbances. And I've had patients present as primary arrests who are actually DKA patients with significant renal failure and hyperkalemia. And they present with sinusoidal patterns on their ECGs initially. Their primary diagnosis was DKA. So they really can run the gamut of cases. And it's very satisfying to treat because it's very treatable once you get the diagnosis, once you get it right. So it's got to be on your radar that these patients can present from the most mild early presenters to patients in shock with altered mental status and coma. So I suppose one of the pitfalls there is just forgetting to order serum ketone. I mean, really, that's kind of the practical take home there that if you have a patient who could be DKA, just make sure you get the serum ketones because it's not, you know, on our order sets, it's not kind of the usual ketones isn't part of our quote unquote, which I hate, routine blood work. I'd say there's even a little bit more to that because you may not get it with your first pass. And it's important not to lock on to a diagnosis early in emergency medicine, as we all know. And so when you see something abnormal about the blood work, oh, the anion gap is a little higher than you'd expect. It's 16 or 17, or the bicarb is a little lower than you expect. You got to explain that. You got to think about it. And so ordering a serum ketones, a lactate, the other things that may help you actually go through the differential for those problems may make the diagnosis. Now, you won't make it as early, but you'll still make it and you'll have a chance to diagnose and treat those patients appropriately. We've been alluding to definition and diagnostic criteria, which as you can tell so far, aren't that clear. So in practical terms, what are the diagnostic criteria of DKA? Dr. Bamel? So there are no definitive criteria for DKA as per the 2018 Diabetes Canada guidelines. But typically, the pH is going to be low. The bicarb will be low. The anion gap will be high. The glucose will be high. And the serum or urinary ketones will be positive. Now, you don't have to have all these metabolic abnormalities to make the diagnosis of DKA. For example, uh, at Sunnybrook, the inclusion criteria on our order set requires that only two of the four abnormalities be present as long as the clinical picture fits and the ketones are positive. So we talked about a very wide differential, and in the wide differential are going to be those things that cause high ketones. So let's dig into that a little bit more. So What's the differential diagnosis for ketoacidosis? And the tricky part is, how do you actually tell the difference between that differential diagnosis? So by far the most important diagnosis to make when a patient has ketones in the blood is diabetic ketoacidosis, because those are going to be the sickest patients with ketosis. There are other things that can lead to ketones in your blood. So the next sickest group of patients typically would be your alcoholic ketoacidotics. And then there's starvation ketosis. And finally, isopropyl alcohol ingestion can also cause some ketoacidosis as well. And it can be tough to sometimes differentiate those patients when they present to the emergency department. 
in general, patients with diabetic ketoacidosis typically will have high sugars. Not always, but typically they will. It would be very unusual for those sugars to be low. Anything's possible, but it'd be extremely unusual. So in the presence of low or low normal sugars, it makes it less likely that those patients are diabetic ketoacidosis, and it makes it more likely that those patients are either alcoholic or starvation ketoacidosis. But mostly, we're going to depend on the history to make that diagnosis. So remember, alcoholic ketoacidosis is actually a marker of fairly significant disease as well. And so remember, alcohol is catabolized to acetaldehyde and then possibly to acetoacetate and then beta-hydroxybutyrate. Those patients can be in the spectrum of DKA sometimes too. All right, Dr. Tillman, we know to look out for and actively seek the underlying trigger of DKA because it's the underlying trigger that usually kills them. And my guess is that sometimes we don't or can't identify the trigger in the ED and it's found out later during their ICU stay. What are the common and life-threatening triggers of DKA that we should really try to uncover in the ED? So the first thing I would say is that most of the time in the emergency department, the physicians do uncover the trigger. So it's the rarer times that the trigger is not identified. And common things being common, this tends to be a challenge with the patient's medications. So these are people who have broken insulin pumps. They're unable to access their medications for a myriad of reasons. There's been new schedule changes. And of course, there's the new presentation diabetic. Those make up by far the largest group. When we think of the big bads or the worrisome things, uh, I think we all look for an acute coronary syndrome. We have ECGs on all these patients. But that's one of the big ones you want to see. Uh, cerebral vascular accidents, strokes, and they can be harder in the DKA patients because a lot of them have an altered level of consciousness to begin with. I think sepsis is always the big one. If a patient comes in this sick, their heart rate's 120, they have an elevated lactate, we should all be thinking sepsis at the beginning and treat them as such while we manage their DKA. And then the addition of different medications. And this is the one that often trips us up because either we don't have access to their med lists when they come in, or we don't think about this. A big one is steroids. We think of our cancer populations. They're placed on high-dose steroids, and it really disrupts their glucose control. The last thing I would mention, and it's probably relevant to our case of the 33-year-old woman who comes in vomiting, is pregnancy. We sometimes have blinders for pregnancy, but think of anyone whose childbearing age can become pregnant. Not everyone knows if they're pregnant, and we can miss it if we don't go looking for it. In particular with the septic patient, I find it sometimes tricky to know when to pull the trigger on giving antibiotics up front, I mean, in general with sepsis, but especially with a patient who's looking like DKA and you're thinking the trigger could be sepsis, do you have any pearls of wisdom in terms of when to pull the trigger on giving on-spec antibiotics to the patient with DKA who might be septic as well? I think my threshold is just constantly decreasing. My trigger is you come in, you're tachycardic, you have a lactate, you're getting antibiotics. Because when we look at all of our antibiotic stewardship, it's about ongoing antibiotics, about not reassessing the patients, as opposed to a single upfront dose. I can't tell you the exact harm of one dose of, say, ceftriaxone, but compared to missing a diagnosis of sepsis, I think you're playing a risk-benefits ratio here. And in a situation where you're presented with a DKA patient where you're like, uh, 
this could be sepsis. I'm giving the antibiotics right then. It's much less a thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. I'll give my first dose of antibiotics. Yeah. I mean, a typical scenario, which I just had last week, actually, was a patient with HHS who I was waiting on the urine forever for. And, you know, their lactate was a little bit up and I was trying to decide whether to give antibiotics or not. I was waiting for the urine and I said, you know what, I'm just going to give them the antibiotics. And that's the exact same thing I would do. If you look at some of the epidemiology of sepsis papers, about 50% of our septic patients are culture negative anyways. So it's very much a clinical diagnosis. And in your situation, the lactate's up a bit. This person's presenting with a very serious diagnosis as DKA or HHSR. I'd give them the antibiotics. All right. So let's get back to our patient. So this patient presented with belly pain, which is one of the symptoms of DKA, but could also be a symptom of, say, appendicitis, like Dr. Summer had mentioned. Dr. Bamel, do you have any pearls of wisdom when it comes to how to sort out the belly pain of a DKA patient? Because inevitably, it seems like most of them do have belly pain. So do you like scan everyone or how do you work that part out? So this can be tough because it's hard to tell at the outset whether it's all metabolic or whether there's something else going on that's contributing to their unwellness. I would pay attention to things like pain out of proportion to exam findings and, of course, any peritoneal findings. But, you know, I would have a low threshold for imaging these patients. And in my life, I've only regretted the imaging that I haven't or I didn't order. But it would also be totally reasonable to treat this patient for a few hours and then reassess her abdominal symptoms and uh, make a decision at that point whether to pull the trigger if she needs abdominal imaging, especially if you're working in a place that doesn't have easy access to advanced imaging. Just one more thing to add. Uh, whenever you're transporting a patient to the radiology department who has ongoing medication and ongoing resuscitation, there's inherent risk to that because that patient may be out of that department longer than you think. And so that definitely is one of the parts of that equation. And so if you want to resuscitate them first and uh, improve their hypovolemic status, which is sometimes responsible for their abdominal pain, I think that's also not an unreasonable approach unless there's something that's really saying this, this is definitely a surgical belly. I, I would agree with all of that. I would sort of reflect on my time when I worked in the emergency department that even if I had someone come in with a very bad belly, you probably have half an hour to an hour to resuscitate them while you're trying to get access to the imaging. So I think as both my colleagues here have said, resuscitate them, serial exams. Uh, I know from the ICU perspective, my threshold for imaging someone is much lower, but that has to do with pretest probability. If you're coming to the ICU, you probably have really terrible disease, and so I search more. Um, but I would completely agree with my colleagues that resuscitate them. You have a bit of time because it's going to take some time to get access to your imaging and see what happens with the abdominal exam. Resuscitate before you imaginate. No. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. We'll come up with something better Before than you that. CT8? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we leave the diagnosis and the differential diagnosis of DKA to go on to treatment, I would be remiss not to mention the now infamous euglycemic DKA. So we covered euglycemic DKA with Walter Himmel a couple of years ago in our best case ever, number 58. And as usual, Walter was amazing. So I recommend that you do go back and listen to that one. But I think we should go over some of the highlights here, keeping in mind that this will be just a tiny proportion of all the DKA patients that you see in the ED. 
So as the name suggests, euglycemic DKA is DKA with a serum glucose that's in the normal range. Dr. Summer, first, when should we consider euglycemic DKA? Like, how, how do these patients present? Well, you should always consider it. No. Um, <laughs> well, oh, you stubbed your toe, sir? Yeah. <laughs> you must have euglycemic exactly. DKA. Just as with other DKA patients, the most common presentation for euglycemic DKA is still vomiting and nonspecific abdominal pain. So these patients will most likely present very similarly to our other DKA patients, which can be difficult to diagnose. Patients with euglycemic DKA, the difference between your regular DKA patients and the patients with euglycemic DKA is that these patients are in a state of relative carbohydrate starvation. They have low carbohydrates in their blood, and that'll affect the balance of the glucagon to insulin, and then you have more free fatty acid catabolism, and they kind of get into this terrible cycle. That relative carbohydrate starvation can be caused by several different things. The thing that's been most discussed in the literature recently is the SGL2 inhibitors, or the glyphlosazin, which is almost impossible to pronounce, but unmistakable. Yeah, I just remember it as the zins, anything that ends in zin. Yeah, so these glyphlosazin like four drugs. four or five of them now, I think. Completely. And what happens with these medications is they increase your renal excretion of carbohydrates, so you get this relative carbohydrate starvation and that leads to normalization of your sugar in your blood. At the same time, they actually can have a positive effect on your glucagon excretion as well. So you get more catabolism of free fatty acids into ketones. Now, don't forget pregnancy. Pregnancy can also lead to euglycemic DKA because you can actually have transplacental glucose transport. And so those patients may have some normalization of their carbohydrates or a relative starvation of carbohydrates because of use and transport to the fetus. That's most common in the second or third trimester. A couple other patients that you should be aware of, it should be in the back of your mind, patients who have undergone bariatric surgery can have some absorption issues, and they can have relative carbohydrate starvation present in euglycemic DKA. And patients with chronic pancreatitis can also sometimes present in a similar manner. But primarily, it's going to be patients who are on those HGLT2 inhibitors and pregnant patients. So we talked about how tricky it can be to diagnose DKA when the pH is normal. Now the plot thickens even more because now we could have a patient who is acidotic, but their pH is normal and their glucose is normal. So what are you looking for on the labs? So how, how are you actually going to clinch the diagnosis? What do we look for? Well, you can look for ketones. That's probably going to be the easiest thing to look for. And if you are lucky enough to have a lab that can actually directly measure uh, beta hydroxybutyrate, that would be the best. Uh, but serum ketones would be for sure helpful. But most of these patients are going to have a low pH, and most of these patients are going to have a high iron gap and a low bicarb. So most of the time, you're going to be able to make this diagnosis, but there's nuance here. You can't hang your hat on hyperglycemia. You can't use pH to rule out DKA. So as long as you're aware of those things, you're less likely to miss the diagnosis. And it plays a bit into how you're treating this as well because you're going to use very much the similar algorithm, which we'll talk about shortly, just they already have a relative carbohydrate deficiency, which means you're going to have to start giving them glucose back because this patient's already lost it. Not only are they not using what they have left, 
they've lost most of what they've taken in. So you need to be conscious of that when you're starting to treat these patients. Yeah. I mean, that seems so counterintuitive. You have someone with euglycemic DKA, and the first thing you do is give them glucose. So I just wanted to add a brief comment about ketones. Uh, you can measure serum ketones or urine ketones. Either one is perfectly acceptable to help you diagnose DKA. And certainly in some places in Ontario, urine ketones is the only test available. The sensitivity of urine ketones is excellent. It's in the high 90s. But there can be cases of false negative urine ketones as well as serum ketones early on in the course of DKA. So if you're concerned about it and it comes back negative, then just repeat the test and continue with your resuscitation. I'm just going to add one more thing. You know, we do rely on the biochemistry to help with the diagnosis, but a lot of this is still going to be based on good old history and physical. The history is going to give you the diagnosis if the patient tells you they're diabetic. The history is going to give you the diagnosis if the patient tells you they've been on an alcohol binge and they're coming in now in withdrawal. You're going to rely on the history a lot of the time. Sure, if the patient comes in altered or obtunded, you're not going to be able to use that. But in the majority of patients, this isn't just a biochemical diagnosis. This is a diagnosis based on history and physical. All right. So the bottom line with all this kind of confusing and gray diagnostic criteria are, when in doubt, get a serum ketone and even better, a beta-hydroxybutyrate if you can. So now we're on to the treatment of DKA. Let's first get straight what our end goal is. So Dr. Bamel, what are the goals of ED treatment of DKA? So the goals of treatment are to replace the fluid losses and the potassium and to correct the hyperglycemia and the acidosis and also, of course, address the underlying trigger if it's obvious. As we know, this is a very precise process that requires a lot of steps and we'll be getting into that shortly that would greatly benefit from using a DKA order set. Um, it certainly has changed my practice for the better over the last 10 years. DKA order sets have been shown to reduce the time to gap closure, reduce complications, and also uh, reduce hospital length of stay. Despite my hate for computers in the emergency department, this is one time where I will depend on the order set, but of course, we are still clinicians. We're going to have some nuanced uh, treatment, which we'll get into soon. The one thing I would add in the goals is when we're saying treat the hyperglycemia, that's the step to closing the gap. So it's not that we're as worried about hyperglycemia, although we'll talk about why it's an issue, but we're really trying to close the gap. We're trying to stop the body from making ketones. And sometimes that's why we need to give back glucose. And basically in the end of every protocol, it's give more glucose. And I think that's a big challenge that we have in flipping our mind. It's not make the glucose go down. It's make the gap close by giving them insulin to stop the generation of ketone bodies. Insulin uses glucose. You're going to have to give back glucose or else going to drive down the glucose. So I really like to highlight that when I'm talking about the goals of treating DKA is you got to give the fluid and the potassium back. That's clearly stated and that's what we should always start with. And then stop ketone production 
and get their body back into normal metabolism. Got it. Okay. So we got to close the gap and we're going to be replacing fluids and K. And we just always have to remember that in the end, we're going to be actually giving back glucose. Excellent. So let's get into the muddy details. <laughs> so the first goal is actually to restore intravascular volume because a lot of these patients are very dry. So let's talk fluids. First, Dr. Tillman, what's going on in DKA that makes it that most of these patients need fluid resuscitation in the first place? When you think of having a high level of glucose in your body, that's an osmotic diuretic. It's like if you give someone mannitol, it raises their osmolality and it makes you pee. That's what glucose is doing. So these patients are urinating and causing fluid loss. Additionally, it makes the concentration, the solute concentration in their blood higher, pulling fluids out of cells. So they have a total volume depletion in their body. Therefore, you need to replace those fluids. That's why when we discussed the first case, and we said what are your initial treatment managements, you're starting with giving fluids. We don't know if this 33-year-old woman has DKA, has sepsis, has appendicitis, has a toxidrome, but we're starting off by giving fluids because specifically in DKA, they are dehydrated by volume loss from an osmotic diuretic. Let's talk a little bit more about fluids. In the latest Canadian DKA guidelines, they recommend normal saline as the initial fluid resuscitation of choice. Other experts recommend ringer's lactate to avoid the hyperchloremic acidosis that's associated with giving lots of normal saline. So what's your take on the best initial fluid resuscitation? I don't know if this is going to be a debate that'll just go on forever. That's worth talking about, but, uh, you know, or if it really makes a difference. Um, but I'm sure some of our listeners are curious. Normal saline or ringer's lactate? So my opinion is whatever crystalloid is closest to you and you're most comfortable with using, that's probably the best one for you. I know with SMART and SALT-ED and the sort of secondary analyses of these, there's more interest in using ringers. We haven't really found a clear signal yet. What do I do in my practice is I do use ringers lactate. That's mainly, as you mentioned, in these high-volume resuscitation patients. They do end up hyperchloremic. And it's just something else that we end up fixing 48 or 72 hours down the road. When I look at the evidence, it's maybe in a secondary analysis of SMART that shows in critically ill medical patients who have sepsis, there's a benefit in using a balanced solution. And I use maybe very strongly as this is a secondary analysis of the paper and it's a very specific population. Furthermore, this isn't the DKA population. So it's hard to extrapolate that. But just because I don't like fixing the hyperchloremia 72 hours later, I'll use Ringer's lactate to begin with. That is not a patient-centered outcome, though. So that's why I wouldn't say you have to use Ringer's or plasmolites or anything. I want physicians using the medication they're most comfortable with because we know if you understand a medication, you're likely to give it better. I think still in most emergency departments that the nurses are most comfortable and have very fast access to normal saline. I would say where I work, if I have a really sick patient who I suspect is in DKA, I'll just start off with a one liter normal saline bolus and then move to ringers after that to prevent the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. I want to get things moving quickly. And I think the fastest way to do that in my department is to give normal saline knowing that I'm not going to be giving normal saline six liters. I'm, I'm just going to stop after one liter and then switch to ringers after that. 
think intuitively, it's never made sense to me to give an acidotic crystalloid to an acidotic patient. But I don't think there's evidence to support outcomes in either direction. But intuitively, it makes more sense to use a balanced solution if it's available. And it doesn't significantly alter the standing protocols that you have. Fair enough. So we've talked about the fluid of choice. We've talked about why we need to give these patients fluid up front and resuscitate them. Let's talk specifics about numbers, like the volume of fluid over how long. Dr. Bamel, can you run through for us the specifics of your approach to the, the fluid resuscitation? Yeah. So just like you mentioned earlier, all the guidelines, the American, Canadian, UK guidelines recommend starting with one liter of normal saline bolus over an hour and then dropping that down to 250 to 500 cc's an hour, depending on the patient's volume status and their underlying cardiac, renal, and liver function. I find it helpful to use point-of-care ultrasound here to help guide fluid resuscitation by looking at How did I know you were going to say that, Mel? (laughs) My favorite toy in the emergency department. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Bamel is is a POCUS educator extraordinaire. Right. It's super helpful. And you can quickly look at the IVC and take a look at its collapsibility and its diameter and see what the heart is doing and how well it's contracting and whether the lungs look wet or dry. And that can be a huge uh, help when you're trying to figure out what to do with the fluids beyond the first liter. And the guidelines also give you the option, we were just talking about hyperchloremic acidosis, of using half normal saline as opposed to normal saline for your maintenance solutions if the corrected sodium is normal or high. And for my Canadian colleagues, corrected sodium is measured sodium plus the glucose minus six divided by three. Um, So if that is normal or high, then you can bring it down to half normal saline and reduce uh, the chances of hyperchloremic uh, acidosis. And finally, we'll be talking about more of this later, but you'll be adding potassium to your maintenance fluids and some glucose uh, once the glucose drops to 14 with treatment. Okay. So I guess the one option is to start with normal saline, about a liter bolus, then you're going to be decreasing it to 250 to 500. And then those patients, especially if they have a a high sodium, uh, you're going to be switching to 0.45 saline, or you just use ringers from the beginning, and then you don't have to worry about that switch. The only problem is a lot of places don't have ringers, or at least where I work, there's no solution with ringers and potassium. And most of these patients are going to require the potassium supplementation. So you get away with using less chloride by using half normal saline. Good point. One thing I've always wondered about and just not smart enough to figure out the pathophysiology of is why the guidelines always recommend doing the volume resuscitation before ever giving any insulin. So, of course, you know, one of the goals is to to close that gap and giving insulin is going to help close that gap. So I'm very eager to give the insulin, but they always say to first fluid resuscitate the patient before giving insulin. Why is that? There's a couple of reasons why you can't just start giving insulin right away. First of all, when you fluid resuscitate one of these patients, you're going to start changing their glucose concentration. And you want to have tight control of what's going on with their glucose. And you don't really know where you're at until they're fluid resuscitated. You're going to shift glucose into their cells with fluids and you're going to dilute it. The second issue is their potassium. So when these patients come in, the potassium is measured as high on our labs most of the time. But their total body concentrations of potassium are low. 
as you resuscitate them, again, you're going to change these concentrations. The most common complication I see when we're treating patients in DKA is making them hypokalemic. And I've actually recently seen an arrest from hypokalemia in DKA. And as soon as you start giving them insulin, closing their gap, and fixing their pH, you're driving more potassium into the cells and making them even more hypokalemic. So you need to ensure that they are metabolically stable and it's a safe place to start giving the insulin. The only way to do that is ensure you've begun your resuscitation. So just like we were talking, you're going to resuscitate a patient before you send them out of the department for a CT scan, or you resuscitate a patient before you intubate them, you're going to resuscitate a patient before you start the insulin. Yeah, and just just to add to that, um, remember that insulin is going to correct your acidosis over hours. So there's really no rush, whereas it can cause problems within minutes of administration because it'll shift that potassium into the cells and the fluid into the cells. So really just the, the risk here outweighs the benefit. All right, before we leave fluids, there is something in the literature called the two-bag method. And this is a little bit of a different fluid resuscitation that I understand has some not bad evidence for. Um, Dr. Summer, can you run through for us how the two-bag method works and why it might be advantageous? It's actually fairly straightforward uh, once you understand it. And it's been described in the pediatric literature initially in the 1990s. And it's basically where you have two bags of resuscitative fluid, both with the same concentration of electrolytes, but one that has D10 sugar as well. So you could have a bag of normal saline and a bag of normal saline plus D10 or back of a half normal D10. And as your blood sugar drops, you increase the rate of the bag containing the sugar. So for example, at the beginning of the resuscitation, if the patient is significantly hyperglycemic, you would start by only giving a bag with, say, normal saline. When you recheck the blood sugar and it started to drop, and this is all protocolized, you would turn down the rate of normal saline while at the same time turning up the rate of normal saline plus D10, all the time maintaining the same total volume of resuscitation. There's evidence that this kind of technique, when used in a protocolized manner, can actually close your gap earlier, so correct the acidosis earlier, and potentially lead to lower lengths of stay. And part of the things that, that it tries to avoid is one, it decreases the rate of hypoglycemia because you're adding a carbohydrate as part of a protocol, and two, continuing to adequately fluid resuscitate the patient at the same time. Practically speaking, anyone in the room use the two-bag method? I haven't. No? No, I, I find at least working with our team that sticking with one protocol is the way that it's executed more smoothly. Uh, that being said, the two-bag method inherently makes sense when you discuss it. It's more the logistics of switching over a large emergency department or a large ICU or a large hospital to a different method, which has really stopped the implementation of this, I would think. All right. So for the researchers out there, a good implementation study on the two-bag method would be helpful. Maybe in five, 10 years, we'll all be switching to the two-bag method if that research pans out. We've talked fluid resuscitation, and we've alluded to insulin and how you need to fluid resuscitate before you give insulin. Let's get a little bit more deep into insulin itself. So first, Dr. Bamel, can you run through for us just how to give the insulin and what your goals that you're shooting for and 
sort of how to change the dosages during the ED stay? Sure. So the guidelines recommend a short-acting insulin, like regular insulin, be given as an infusion intravenously at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. That's the starting rate. And then you adjust that rate initially based on the blood glucose, which you're measuring every hour or two. And then over time, the blood glucose will drop. And once it reaches 14, you'll be starting intravenous glucose to prevent hypoglycemia while you continue your insulin drip so that you can close the gap. Because often the hyperglycemia is corrected faster than the gap is closed. And then from here, you'll titrate the insulin according to the anion gap. If for some reason your glucose falls to, let's say, less than four in the danger zone, then you're not to stop the insulin drip. You just want to bring it down by about 50% uh, to no less than 0.5 units per hour and give an amp D50 and change your D5 over to D10. That's the gist of it. Obviously, again, a plug for an order set because there's no way that you can do this from your brain. Uh, you need an organized approach that your team can easily follow. A couple of key points in there. First is don't stop the insulin. Instead, you're adding glucose. So that, that's going to be a recurrent theme that comes back again and again. You had mentioned that you're starting an infusion at 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Um, I've seen rates as high as 0.14. And then you've seen some experts recommend bolusing insulin up front for the really sick patients. And I think this is kind of a controversial point. Dr. Summer, why is there this controversy about giving a bolus dose of insulin up front versus just starting an infusion at 0.1 or 0.14? I think that most of the controversy is actually resolved at this point. Most protocols now do not call for an upfront insulin bolus. It tends to lead to more hypoglycemia downstream, and it leads to longer length of stay, and it does not lead to a faster closing of an anion gap and resolution of acidosis. And so largely, I think the controversy is done. I know that there is some discussion on patients who are significantly sick, who are, you know, perhaps peri-arrest or pre-intubation, that you may want to get that insulin started quickly. And if you're unable to get an insulin drip set up in an expeditious way, you may want to give an upfront quick dose of a bolus of insulin. That may be the only scenario where I think it could be indicated. But even there, there's no evidence guiding that. And like Dr. Bamel was alluding to earlier, the insulin is going to take several hours to really start working on that acidemia. And so, yes, we definitely want to get that acidemia under control. However, we don't want to do that at the risk of causing significant hypoglycemia or significant hypokalemia. All right. And we've talked about this a little bit, but it's worth reiterating that you should not stop the insulin infusion completely in the ED pretty much ever. Why is it that you shouldn't stop the insulin in the ED, but rather add glucose? Just go over that for us again. So the key thing I think needs highlighting again is this isn't necessarily a problem of hyperglycemia. Yes, the hyperglycemia causes a dehydration through osmotic diuresis. This is a problem of ketone generation. And until you're giving insulin to stop the generation of ketone bodies, the body will flip back into that. 
And so if you stop the insulin while they're in the emergency department with these sick patients, they very rapidly start to become ketotic again. So I commonly see patients who get the appropriate treatment up front, their gap starts closing, their glucose gets below 10, so that's to a normal level now, and the insulin gets shut off. Their blood work gets checked an hour later, their gap is again 20, their glucose is again 20, and you're starting from scratch. So you have to ensure you've shut off ketosis, and the patient has a way of continually using the new sugar they're getting which means they have to switch eventually to a long-acting subcutaneous insulin. Beautiful. We've covered fluid resuscitation. We've covered insulin. Next up is potassium. So Dr. Bamel, we all know that we can't trust the serum potassium level of a DKA patient when it pops up on the computer. And that even with normal appearing serum potassium, most of these patients will need at least some K in their IV fluid. And as you eloquently explained in our hyperkalemia episode a few years ago, extremes of serum potassium are really bad for patients. And Dr. Tillman was just talking about how hypo-K is one of the more common serious complications of the treatment of DKA. So what's the best way to deal with K in DKA? Yeah, so as as we've all mentioned, the K can often appear quite good on your lab results because of hemoconcentration and shifting from the acidosis. So if the K is normal or low, you want to add potassium to your maintenance fluids. And typically the recommendation is to give 20 to 40 millimoles of KCL to each liter of saline, which equates to about 10 to 20 milliequivalents of potassium per hour that you'll be giving your patients through a peripheral IV. If for some reason, uh, right at the outset of treatment, your K comes back really low, less than 3.3, then you're not to start insulin right away. Uh, You'll need to replace that potassium so that you don't end up with a life-threatening hypokalemia situation. And usually that's replaced with a mini bag of KCL, 20 mil equivalents, and 100 cc's of sterile water that can be given over an hour through a peripheral IV. IV potassium replacements sucks relative to oral potassium replacement. So if these patients can take orally, either safely by swallowing a pill, or if they've been so sick they've been intubated and they have an NG in, you can replace these patients orally. And the really low ones, the ones that are coming back with the potassiums less than 3.5, I will give them a dose of 40 mil equivalents of potassium orally because that is going to increase the potassium faster and more effectively than trying to run this through the IV. So just realize people have been using their GI tracts their entire life, and we've been doing this for generations, and we can do it in the hospital too. Because I find that as soon as a DKA patient comes to hospital, we just ignore their mouth and use the IVs, and it makes things harder, and people like to eat. So try and use the oral route when safe to do. Although it tastes disgusting, apparently. (laughs) True. One last thing about uh, potassium. Many of these patients will also have uh, hypomagnesemia, and that may make it harder to get their potassium up until you've corrected that. So be aware of their magnesium and correct it as well, especially in the setting of hypokalemia, because it'll make it easier to drive their potassium up. 
Great point. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on in the treatment of DKA, after fluid resuscitation, insulin, and potassium considerations comes the oh-so-controversial topic of whether or not to give bicarb in the really acidotic, sick DKA patient. So Dr. Tillman, I'm sure this thing comes up all the time in the ICU. Let's say our patient's pH comes back on the VBG as 7.0 and their bicarb is super low. Will you give bicarb? What if it's 6.9? What if it's 6.7? You know, I mean, for me, when the pH gets below 6.7 and the bicarb's in the boots, I feel like I need to jump to give bicarb. I understand the literature. There's really no good evidence for it. I've been, you know, ridiculed by intensivists of not giving bicarb when the pH is really low. What's your take? So I feel like you've decided to pick on me to even ask (laughs) me this question. It's probably because I'm not working the eMERGE right now. My approach to bicarb uh, probably changes week to week. And you've highlighted this. It's what's the cutoff? Why are you giving it? What's the goal? So when I'm thinking of giving bicarb, I have to say to myself, what am I trying to do? Why am I increasing their pH? So I have to decide, is their pH causing them harm or specifically fixing that number is going to make them better? And there's not a lot of situations. There's discussion about maybe vasoactive agents don't work as well in an acidotic environment. I don't personally know of any great literature that demonstrates that, but we like using that argument as a reason to give bicarb. The heart probably is not as functional in a profoundly acidotic environment. So those two things say to me, if they're having cardiovascular collapse, they're profoundly unstable, and the pH is in this below 7 range, maybe I'll try some bicarb to see if giving them bicarb increases their blood pressure. It's also the equivalent of giving them a fluid bolus, though. So I usually start by resuscitating them, just like we talked about earlier. The bigger situation comes to intubating these patients. So I really, really, really do not like intubating patients in DKA. They're one of those high groups that don't like intubating them and right-sided heart failure. Not patients that I go out of my way to intubate. If you're going to intubate these patients, there is likely going to be a period where they're not breathing as effectively. And at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how one of the markers was their hyperpnea, these large breaths that don't seem to cause them difficulty you're going to decrease that even if you decide not to paralyze them by inducing these patients they are breathing less effectively and you're going to have a period of time be it 20 seconds 45 seconds minutes depending on how it goes so if i'm going to intubate a patient i'll probably load them with bicarb before i do not because i think that's fixing anything but it'll transiently buffer up their ph to handle the increased co2 load they get from having a lower work of breathing so that's really the only time I routinely use bicarb. Everything else is I look at their number, I look at their clinical picture, and I sort of see what makes sense to me. Fair enough. I like that. So in the really acidotic patient that you're about to intubate, definitely consider giving a bolus of bicarb. And maybe when you're throwing the typewriter at a patient who's pre-arrest, uh, it would be not unreasonable to give some bicarb, um, knowing that There's no hard evidence out there that bicarb really changes outcomes. The other thing that keeps on popping up in the literature for DKA is the idea of starting long-acting insulin in the ED. Um, Dr. Summer, 
what's the rationale for starting long-acting insulin early in the care of these DKA patients? And do you recommend that we have this in our order sets and actually do it in the emergency department? Or is that something that they can do sort of later on in the ICU? I recommend we do it early. There's a sound reasoning behind it. Uh, you know, type 1 diabetic patients, by definition, lack adequate insulin for their basal metabolic rate. And that'll be true whether they're on an insulin infusion or not. And so if you're going to, at some point, take them off that insulin infusion, what you don't want to have is rebound hyperglycemia. And if you provide them with their basal insulin requirements early, and that's not going to significantly affect their insulin drip in any way because these are slow-acting medications, they're less likely to suffer adverse events later in their hospitalization probably that day or the next day, because they have their basal metabolic insulin requirements met. So yeah, I think it's a very reasonable thing to give them their single dose of long-acting insulin early on in their eMERGE course. Fair enough. Let's say with this patient, we've given some crystalloid, say they've had a couple of liters by now, Uh, you started your insulin infusion, and now you're repeating the blood work. And I hate when this happens, but unfortunately it happens more often than than I'd like, is the gap hasn't budged at all. And of course, one of our goals is to close the gap. What's your next move? So you've given the fluids, you've started your insulin, you've repeated your blood work, and you haven't gotten any further along. So I would check to make sure that the correct amount of insulin is being given, that I've written the uh, right amount and that it's uh, being given in the appropriate dose for where the patient is at in their treatment process. Um, I'd make sure the line is working properly, that it hasn't gone interstitial. I would also look to see how much fluid they've received and how much output there's been. I'd reassess their fluid status, again, with point-of-care ultrasound, get another lactate to make sure that it's not going up, uh, despite my best efforts at fluid resuscitating the patient. And then if all that seems normal, then I'm considering other causes of a metabolic acidosis that maybe I didn't consider early on. Great. Yeah. I mean, as as we've been saying, there's almost always an underlying trigger that's more likely than the DKA itself to kill the patient. And sometimes that underlying trigger is a thing that's jacking up the anion gap. And so you have to treat that sometimes separately from the DKA. Dr. Tillman, you had mentioned that you don't like to intubate patients who are really acidotic. And we talked about how you'll probably give a bolus of bicarb Let's talk a little bit more about avoiding intubation and what your oxygenation options are. If you could just explain to our listeners why generally should we avoid intubating patients with DKA? What about BiPAP? Is that an option? Sure. So I'll start with the first part about why I don't like intubating these patients. And it's a fairly standard recommendation to try and avoid it when possible. And I think there are at least two major reasons. The first one is the way these patients are breathing. So they're taking large breaths to try and fix their acidosis. If you switch someone to positive pressure ventilation and deliver these huge tidal volumes, you're going to put them at risk for ventilator-induced lung injury. So therefore, by intubating them, you actually increase their risk for harm and eventually developing ARDS or other complications. Likewise, it's actually really difficult for a ventilator to match the breathing that a patient's able to do. 
And when we think of the classic DKA patient in our mind, this is usually a young patient, so in their 20s or 30s, and they can generate huge minute volumes, 20 liters a minute greater than that. To do that with a ventilator is very challenging and likely injurious. So that's one reason is I don't think I can do as good a job helping with thoracic-based status using a mechanical ventilator as a patient can do spontaneously breathing. The second issue is intubating a DKA patient is a high-risk event. These patients have come to you dehydrated in extremis already, and trying to induce them and switch them to positive pressure puts them at higher risk for having peri-intubation collapse. So just like we've been discussing all along, you resuscitate before you intubate. Same thing would happen here, but still very challenging, more so because I'm concerned I'm going to exacerbate their acidosis when I pause their breathing. Because either you're sedating and decreasing their tidal volume or sedating and paralyzing, basically eliminating their tidal volume. That being said, I've definitely intubated many DKA patients, but those are the discussions I have in my mind. The second part of your question was alternatives to help with oxygenation and ventilation. Thankfully, in many DKA patients, oxygenation isn't a primary issue. They're usually able to oxygenate quite well. This changes if their underlying trigger happens to be an oxygenation problem, such as pneumonia. But in a pure DKA who has missed their medications, has a malfunctioning pump, oxygenation doesn't tend to be the issue. It's a work of breathing issue. And that's why people discuss non-invasive ventilation, such as BiPAP. And there are many schools of thought on this. One, people with DKA have gastroparesis. You put them on non-invasive bi-level pressure, you're going to make them vomit and aspirate. And clearly, that is not good. So people try and avoid BiPAP. The other thing is, well, maybe you can decompress their stomach with an NG tube, and you can walk them through their increased work of breathing with some BiPAP. There is no good evidence that says BiPAP should be used in patients with DKA, and there's lots of reasons to be concerned. Have I done it? Yes. Will I do it? Only in a heavily monitored scenario. So if you're in an ICU with one-to-one nursing, so this isn't even a step-up unit that has two-to-one, you need to have close eyes on you. Can I do it in the emergency department? Not in any of the emergency departments I've worked in, but maybe you have a zone that has one-to-one nursing and you can consider it. If you can't have close monitoring, ensure you can decompress the stomach, I probably would not use BiPAP as a method to decrease the work of breathing. Then the last issue is oxygenation. So you can use nasal prongs, non-rebreathers, and then can you use high-flow nasal cannula? I've certainly done it for a primarily hypoxic issue. Doing it to offset their work of breathing, it delivers a bit of positive pressure, but it's not a huge amount. So I don't find it saves you in a work of breathing situation, but may help you walk that line in one of these hypoxic patients and avoid intubating them. So for a primarily hypoxia issue, I will use a high-flow nasal cannula. So the bottom line there is avoid intubation whenever possible. If you need to intubate, consider giving bicarb. Know that the patient may very well likely crash. Make sure you resuscitate before you intubate. If the patient has worker breathing issues and you decide not to intubate, BiPAP should only be used in a one-to-one highly monitored setting, which in most emergency departments does not exist. So for most emergency departments, emergency physicians, BiPAP isn't really an option. And then if there are oxygenation issues, 
non-rebreather, high flow are your options. High flow may help a little bit with worker breathing, might give you a tiny bit of pressure. Um, I think that's probably the point where I'm going to call you, Dr. Tillman. <laughs> I'm going to call my intensivists and ask them for help. We've probably all been there where you just have to intubate this patient. You have a really sick HHS or DKA patient. They're decreased LOA. They're getting worse. And you know this patient needs a tube. So if you do have to intubate these patients in the ED for whatever reason, knowing that they're really acidotic and have just been vomiting all over the place, how should we modify our usual RSI technique? Dr. Summer? Well, as Dr. Tillman has already alluded to, even a brief bout of apnea here is going to significantly change these already very compromised patients. You're going to drive their acidosis up, and it can very easily degenerate into an arrest scenario just from acidosis alone. So you got to do everything that you can to optimize uh, your conditions for intubation prior to touching that patient. So that means resuscitating them, as we've already said, fluid resuscitating them ensuring that they uh, don't have any oxygenation issues before. So if you can use high-flow nasal cannula or something else to optimize their oxygenation, so that takes that out of the equation as well. And if you feel like it'll provide you a bit of a buffer, then absolutely using bicarb uh, in the peri-intubation period I think would be reasonable, though I don't know if there's any evidence to support it in either way. But the acidosis is going to be fatal because these patients are breathing down their CO2s as far as like 15 sometimes. So you got to be very cautious with them. And so paralyzing them may be the wrong way to go. And so using a traditional RSI technique, you got to think about whether you really want to do that at all and consider your other options. Sometimes RSI is the right choice if you think that they have a significant aspiration risk. If you think they're going to vomit during an intubation, then it may be the right thing to do some version of uh, a rapid sequence intubation with paralysis. But you at least have to consider something like either an awake or a ketamine-assisted intubation scenario where you're not taking away all their respiratory drive. Because even if they're breathing a little bit, that's better than breathing not at all. Um, so I'd consider that. I'm sure that Dr. George Kovach would consider this a physiologically challenging airway. There's no doubt it is. So you want to at least consider an awake or ketamine-assisted intubation in a spontaneously breathing patient. If you think that that's not a feasible approach, then you can do a paralytic induction, but I would keep bagging them. These patients need to continue to breathe. So don't allow an apneic period like you would in a normal patient where you're doing an RSI. Continue to bag them or have the ventilator set up to a mask where you'll have the vent ready to go and you can continue to ventilate them using a BiPAP mask as you're paralyzing them and then quickly switching over to the vent once you have that tube in. Because even a brief period of apnea could potentially be fatal for that patient. Dr. Tillman, you had alluded to one of the more common complications of DKA, and that was hypo-K. We had also talked a little bit about one of the other complications, hypoglycemia. So those are kind of two big ones that we all need to be on the lookout for. What we haven't talked about yet in particular is cerebral edema. Now, cerebral edema happens much more often in kids. It has been reported in adults as well, up to 28 years old. Um, and we discussed this in detail in our pediatric DKA episode. But I think it's worth reviewing here. Luckily, it's 
quite rare in adults, and we don't have to worry about it too much. But I think there are some precautions we should take uh, in the really sick patients. So Dr. Tillman, how can we avoid cerebral edema, this rare but devastating complication of DKA? So I think the key to this is avoid rushing things. So as was talked about, the insulin is going to work over time. Everything happens over time. When we get impatient and we try and speed up normalization of someone's metabolic system, that's when we put them at risk. And I think part of that's also why the bolus of insulin has gone out of favor in adult patients. We saw that there were great concerns in pediatric patients, no benefits really in adult patients, potential harms, and that fell out of the way. And then comes the same idea when they're correcting your osmolality. Osmolality is difficult to calculate in these patients. And I'll refer you to the show notes to see how you figure out what their sodium actually is, because it's not what the number says. But you don't need to drive things down super fast. It comes down to as well, when are you going to use 0.9% normal saline or 0.45 normal saline? Because everything's about slow changes. And when you think of your DKA protocol, it asks you to do recurrent blood work. Depending at the center you're at, this could be as frequently as every two hours to as far as every four hours. Because what you want to avoid is big shifts in osmolality. How do we follow that? We usually follow it by their sodium. So you want to avoid big shifts in sodium. A good general rule you, I keep in my head is a sodium drop of greater than 10 in 24 hours is likely too much. You can usually catch it dropping quickly if you're doing frequent blood work and then just change the tonicity of the fluid you're giving to the patient. So I think the overall thing to remember to avoid this complication is there's no need to rush right now. This is a sick patient who needs time and attention and frequent follow-ups. And as long as you're supporting them and you're treating the underlying cause, you can get them through this. Just don't rush to be there first. That just brings up the point, you know, we haven't talked specifically about monitoring, but we all know that all the protocols say that we should be doing, you know, glucose checks every hour and lights and BBGs every couple of hours or every four hours. You know, I'm just trying to think about our department. We're seeing 350 patients every 24 hours and we might be short staffed. I think it's really important to stress that these patients the really sick ones are really best taken care of after the initial resuscitation in the intensive care unit. And so I think part of our job is to get those patients to the ICU as soon as possible, where they can have one-to-one or one-to-two nursing. Yeah, agreed. And uh, a lot of what Dr. Tillman was saying is that there's time to correct a lot of these parameters is true and very counterintuitive to most emergency physicians, because much of what we like to do is fix things quickly in the time that we're there, in the time that the patient's in the department. And we don't always get to do that in DKA. And don't forget that your DKA patients, especially your HHS patients, their disease took a little while to happen. And so fixing it early can actually be very bad for them because their brains have gotten used to a certain osmolality and they actually produce their own osmols intracellularly. And so it takes time for your brain to adjust that back to a normal tonicity as you adjust their intravascular tonicity. So it takes time. All right. A little bit counter ED doc (laughs) mentality we need to take. So we need to kind of slow down, change things slowly, at the same time, get them to the ICU fast. 
The one other thing I wanted to add there, as you mentioned, they need frequent monitoring. And earlier on, it was mentioned that means lots of venipunctures. These patients, I will try and get some form of access from which you can draw blood work from to try and limit the amount of pokes they get because it's very uncomfortable. So remember, ABGs themselves are incredibly uncomfortable and painful. No one likes getting poked on that side of their wrist. So I don't use an ABG to figure out my acid-base status. I use a VBG. And then if they are going to come to an ICU and need ongoing monitoring, the decision comes, should I put in an art line using local anesthetic to allow for recurrent blood draws? Do they need a central line because of everything that's going on, that they need lots of different resuscitation medications? But I try and get an access point for the patient that allows me to draw blood work, or allows the nurses more specifically to draw blood work, without having to poke the patient every four hours. Because it is really uncomfortable and no one likes a needle every four hours. Good point. All right. We've talked a little bit about disposition, the sick patients going to the ICU, but of course, not everyone's going to the ICU. Some patients are going to the floor and some people you can actually discharge home. And I think the discharge home one is kind of the tricky one. Dr. Summer, which patients that we diagnose with DKA in the ED are safe to go home? So I think if this, any. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a rare scenario because, again, the patients have DKA, but there's often a reason that they have DKA that needs addressing. Because even if you discharge them home and they're perfectly stable, they're very likely to represent very early if you haven't addressed the underlying issue. Whether that's a physiologic issue or that's a social issue, that needs to be addressed. Rarely can that happen in one ED shift, eight, 12 hours, whatever it is. So most of these patients will need minimum a period of observation and admission. Now, that being said, if you feel that all those things have been addressed and the patient's parameters are back to normal, meaning they're non-acidotic, they have no anion gap, you've controlled their blood glucose, and their bicarbonate is back to physiologic levels, potentially those patients could be discharged as long as they're reasonable, compliant, have access to medications, and access to transport back to the hospital. Those are all things that I would consider. But I have to say, this is a very rare scenario. Absolutely. I can't remember the last time I sent someone home with DKA. I would like to highlight just on the last two points you said there, I think the access to medications and access to transportation. So presentations such as DKA are a marker in our marginalized populations. These are the people who can't afford their testing strips. They can't get their medications. And that means it's very difficult for them to get back to hospitals as well. And I think we're getting better at realizing a lot of the systemic issues that lead to these disease presentations, but that really needs to be taken into account, however we disposition these patients, that there's more than just their biochemical status that's going to make them safe to be able to be back at home. One way of uh, addressing it, it was uh, there's a Dr. Goldfrank from New York who always would say, uh, what's the lesion in the system that caused this patient to present to hospital? And if you haven't addressed that in a DKA patient, they're not safe for discharge. Nicely put. We're almost wrapping up this podcast on DKA. The next podcast is going to be dedicated to HHS. But before we do, um, Dr. Tillman, if there were two or three pitfalls that you see in patients being admitted to the ICU with DKA from the ED that you think ED docs around the world should know about, what would those things be? 
So I think we've highlighted one of the most common pitfalls, which is stopping the insulin. I see it all the time, either from ED colleagues or from my trainees, that the sugar gets low, the insulin gets stopped. So it's been highlighted throughout this conversation is don't stop the insulin. You need to replace their basal insulin as well when you're getting to the end. So that's probably the biggest pitfall I see. The second biggest pitfall is not replacing potassium or assuming it's okay because your initial potassium was four. And this comes down to understanding the shifts associated with their acidosis and their total volume depletion. The last pitfall is more a patient center side is many of my patients complain that they're not allowed to eat. I've looked at lots of protocols and they do list the patient be made NPO, but there's no evidence behind this. It's usually for patient safety and the really sick ones were worried they're going to vomit, going to aspirate. But many of these patients aren't that sick. So if someone isn't super ill, it's likely safe if you've assessed them to allow them to eat, and it makes people much more comfortable. Also, as was discussed, these patients don't have the carbohydrates they need to close their gap. We have to give them sugar back anyways. So allow your patients to have some food if they can do that safely. It may make it a tiny bit harder checking their glucose, but we're monitoring it every hour anyways. So it's not adding a whole lot of extra work for us to allow a patient to be more comfortable while they're dealing with a very serious illness. So some of the highlights here, don't rule out DKA just because a patient has a normal pH. Uh, remember that our main goal here is to close the gap, not necessarily just to decrease the glucose. Remember, in the emergency department, we should pretty much never stop the insulin. Instead, give glucose. Be very attentive to K. And remember that one of the biggest complications is hypokalemia. And a nice little tip at the end there is let your patients eat if they're not at an aspiration risk. 